Good evening and welcome to the Spirit and Life Bible Study. My name is Jonathan. Our reader is Cara tonight. And we're talking about usefulness. Now, we often talk in this Bible study about uh, ugly rumors that go around in Christianity. This, we're dealing with another one tonight. There's an ugly rumor been going around for a couple of thousand years that uh, heaven is a condition of complete inactivity and rest from your labors and so on. That is a biblical phrase. We'll take a look at that. And in fact, that work is something that came in with the fall. You know, when, when humankind fell, then you had to work. Before then, no work. And so that has created this idea uh, that heaven, that along with pictures in the book of Revelation, give us the idea that heaven is a state of playing harps. We'll see in the book of Revelation, there's a lot of falling down and worshiping that goes on and so on. Uh, but it doesn't seem like there's much useful activity. And yet, think about it, friends, doesn't scripture constantly say that we need to be fruitful? And in fact, if we're not fruitful, we're not going to be saved. And doesn't it talk about things that profit us and to actually talk about usefulness and good works and so on? So how can we put these two things together, what these two sets of teachings. I invite you to join me in that journey tonight, if you would, good friends. And let's start with a prayer. Our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, we're grateful for your bringing us together in your name. You are the word made flesh, the one God of heaven and earth, the inaccessible light made accessible. We thank you for your presence among us, Lord, your presence in the pages of the word. Please open up your word to our minds and hearts. Amen. Amen. Thank you. Sending out love to those of you getting the message in video form and those getting audio and podcasts and so on and so forth. Greetings in the name of the Lord. So let's look at these passages that have caused so much trouble, you know, way back when. Uh, you know, 1,500 years ago, whenever, 1,200, whatever, uh, there was this monastic movement. You know, the, the, the best Christians should be in a monastery. You should be uh, worshiping God, getting up at all hours of the day and night uh, to worship God, to say prayers and all that kind of thing. That was a truly holy life. Uh, living in this world, making a living, enjoying, uh, you know, marriage and kids that was sort of a fallen state is not not an ideal condition to be in uh, let's look at a little bit of where that came from let's start in genesis all the way in the left of your bible things were going well for a couple of chapters for adam and eve and then this snake got involved and this fruit and so on and it didn't go so well and god pronounced a curse and i'm interested particularly in chapter three Verse 17, what was the curse to Adam? Then to Adam he said, Because you have heeded the voice of your wife and have eaten from the tree of which I commanded you, saying you shall not eat of it, cursed is the ground for your sake. In toil you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Don't like that word toil right there. Hmm. And so this is the curse is that there will be toil. Up until this, then, you know, all these fruit trees are just bearing fruit. and You just gather the, the fruit and you don't have to uh, do anything. But now he's going to have to toil. So what's that going to be like? Both thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. Uh-oh. 
This is the ground, right? So the, the ground is actually cursed, and it's going to bring thorns and thistles. And you shall eat the herb of the field. Mm. In the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. Mm. For out of it you, are, you were taken. For dust you are, and to dust you shall return. Yes, in the sweat of your face you'll eat bread. So you can see where people might get the idea that before the fall there was no work. Everything was great. Then after the fall, part of the curse was... Now you have to sweat. Now you have to work. You're going to have to work the land uh, to be able to get the food that you need. And this was part of the curse, along with pain and childbirth and, and so on uh, for the woman and, and so on. Okay. And let's go all the way to the other end of the Bible, to the book of Revelation. Um, let's start here at chapter uh, 4. John is on the Isle of Patmos and he sees into heaven and uh, he tells us about these creatures and these elders. There were four and twenty elders and look in verse 10 there, Revelation 4 verse 10. The twenty-four elders fall down before him who sits on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever and cast their, their crowns before the throne saying, You are worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they exist and were created. Okay, so these four and twenty elders are falling down before the one who sits on the throne. I should mention in between here, obviously there's all kinds of teachings, but uh, in the Ten Commandments, isn't there the idea that six days you'll labor and do all your work, and then the seventh is this day of rest? God himself when he was doing the creation. Rest was that nice end of all that. Um, and here we get a picture of these four and twenty elders who are up in heaven and they're worshiping, bowing down, you know, falling down, it says, not bowing down, falling down and worshiping him and casting their crowns down. Uh, look in chapter 5. Let's skip down to verse 8. Now, when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each having a harp a harp, and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. Okay. Now, how can a bowl be a prayer or how can incense be a prayer? It seems non-literal. And what do they do in verse 9? And they sang a new song. Yes, they sang a new song, praise to God. So they're, they're singing and they're playing harps. This is one of the passages from which uh, the idea that angels sit around all day playing harps. We picture them on clouds and they're, they're singing and they're in constant worship of God. This is the idea. Um, let's read some more fall down passages, shall we? <laughs> 5.14. Then the four living creatures said, Amen. And the 24 elders fell down and worshipped him who lives forever and Okay, ever. how about chapter 7, verse 11. All the angels stood around the throne and the elders and the four living creatures and fell on their faces before the throne and worshipped God. Okay, so they're just literally standing around. I mean, they're standing around the throne. So it seems as though the angels are not, not doing much, uh, but they <laughs> fall down from time to time and they're, and they're worshipping God. Okay, how about 11 verse 1? What is that? Oh, that's just a... Is that the one I want? Yeah. Measure. 
Yeah, that's, that's more of a measuring, isn't it? That, mm -hmm. And uh, the, the angel's standing there in that one. Mm -hmm. And uh, what's going on in 1116? Uh, and the 24 elders who sat before God on their thrones fell on their faces and worshipped God. Okay, they're doing it again. And then in chapter 14, um, oh, it's just, just talking about worship in there. We don't need that one probably. How about 15, verse 4? Oh, they're, they're um, yes, look at 15. Let's start at the beginning of that chapter. Then I saw another sign in heaven, great and marvelous, seven angels having the seven last plagues, for in them the wrath of God is complete. And I saw something like a sea of glass mingled with fire, and those who have the victory over the beast, over his image and over his mark and over the number of his name, standing on the sea of glass. There they are standing there. Having harps of God. Okay, they're standing there with their harps. Okay, mm -hmm. and what do they do next? They sing the song and of they Moses. Sing a song. Okay, that's good. And I just want to check one more. I think in chapter 19, verse 4. And the 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshipped God who sat on the throne. Yes, so there's a lot of falling down and worshipping that's going on. There's some standing. There's some singing. This seems to be what these angels and these elders and so on are doing. It's not the only thing they do. Occasionally they do something strenuous. Have a look at Revelation chapter 14. Turn back a little bit to 14 verse 19. So the angel thrust his sickle into the earth mm. and gathered the vine of the earth and threw it into the great winepress of the wrath of God. Sounds a little more work-like. You know, you're, you're, you're harvesting, in, in goes the sickle and so on. And perhaps even more strenuous in chapter 18, verse 21. Then a mighty angel took up a stone like a great millstone and threw it into the sea saying, Thus with violence the great city Babylon shall be thrown down and shall not be found anymore. Yes, yeah, so th there's, there's some activity. Uh, you know they, they cry out, they fill censers, they blow trumpets, they pour out vials, they carry people, they measure the city. They're, they're doing various things, but uh, only those two seem particularly strenuous, and there's a lot of standing and a lot of falling down. There's some walking, some following, and so on. But this is the image you get at probably the clearest place in Scripture where we see right into heaven for an extended period of time. And that's what we see the angels doing up there. So it's kind of understandable uh, that we got this idea that it's pretty much the state of rest. And that was greatly aided and abetted by Revelation chapter 14, verse 13, which says the following. Then I heard a voice from heaven saying to me, Write, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Yes, says the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors and their works follow them. Okay, so blessed are the dead who die in the Lord. I guess dying in the Lord, does that mean that you're a good person or something? And if, if you die in the Lord, you get to rest from your labors. Uh some people sometimes talk about working like the devil or that sort of thing. I think there's an idea that there's rest in heaven uh, because of these kind of teachings that we've been looking at. But it says that they may rest from their labors and their works 
follow them. Hmm, their works follow them. So these are the kind of teachings that have given people the impression that, oh, well, if we want to be heavenly on earth, what we should be doing is we should stand around God, we should fall down and worship many times a day, we should, we should sing songs to God. Uh, as you may know, Swedenborg has this experience of seeing people. Part of his claim was that he could see in the afterlife while he was still here, and he could see his loved ones and all kinds of people he knew going into the afterlife. And a lot of people who got to the afterlife uh, thought that heaven was going to be constant glorification of God and doing exactly this kind of thing, worshiping, singing songs. That was the purest, most heavenly sort of life. And somehow the idea that if you had to get a job and work in the city and have kids and stuff like that, that that was sort of a necessary evil. But it would really be better if, if you could just uh, worship God in a purer way. But think about all the way back to the, the book of Genesis where, where they, they were talking about fruit. There was already this sense of fruit in the garden there. And there are a lot of teachings about the fact that we need to be fruitful. I want to pick out four passages, maybe just think of Matthew 3, Matthew 25, John 15, and Galatians 5. 3, 25, 15, 5. Sort of an order there of some kind. Uh, let's go to Matthew 3 and see what I'm talking about. Because it talks in terms of fruit. There's much, much talk in Scripture, of course, about good works. And uh, there's been a debate about this in Christianity forever. And as you probably know, good friends, there's a general feeling, another rumor that's out there, is that, yes, of course you have to do good works. You should be doing them all the time as a sign of your faith but they contribute absolutely nothing to your salvation. You know, it, it could not be that way. It can't be that it's not that you get brownie points and you earn your way into heaven. Uh, they contribute nothing. It's only your faith that saves you. Your faith has saved you. Faith has made you whole. Uh, it's not about your works because you don't earn your way into heaven is this idea that's going around. All right. Well, let's look at Matthew 3. We're looking at Matthew 3, 25, John 15, and Galatians 5. In Matthew 3... We have John the Baptist, don't we? And he comes along and he sees these people coming down to the Jordan. They're confessing their sins. And look in verse 7. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Mm. Therefore, bear fruits worthy of repentance. Huh. They're told to bear fruits worthy of repentance, okay? And do not think to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I say to you that God is able to raise up children to Abraham from these stones. And listen to this. And even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Mm. Therefore, every tree which does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Now, what do you imagine that fire is? In Scripture, isn't it clear that there's this idea of hell fire, this image of hell fire, and every tree, it doesn't say that you bring forth bad fruit, it's just every tree that does not bring forth good fruit is hewn down and cast into the fire. Now, how do you reconcile that with the idea that your good works have no impact on your salvation? It makes no sense. It's said right there, it's the only factor. If you're not bringing forth good fruit, you're hewn down and cast into the fire. That's a picture of, 
of the condemnation that comes from not doing good works. That's what Matthew 3 says. Okay, how about Matthew 25? We look at this every week, whether we need to or not. The parable of the sheep and the goats. And you may remember, good friends, starting at verse 31, that there are these sheep who have done nice things to other people, and they are saved. It's very clear uh, that, um, you know, he says, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. They can't understand it. He says, well, it's because you did nice things for other people. That's why you're being saved. It's your works that save you. There's an ugly rumor going around that they don't have that effect, but they do. I would take Jesus' word for it. And that's what he says very clearly here. And uh, then he goes on to say uh, to the, the goats, depart from me, you cursed, in verse 41, into everlasting fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. Hmm, sounds like hell fire. Why do they have hell fire? Because they didn't do anything for their neighbor. They didn't do useful things like visiting people, taking care of them, giving them things to eat and drink, and so on. And uh, it says in verse 46, if you would read it, dear reader. And these will go away into everlasting punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Now, it may sound hard or harsh or something, but it's pretty clear teaching that Jesus is saying very forcefully that the doing of good is what saves you and the lack of doing good is what condemns you doesn't make a mention of faith in there anywhere. That's the basis. Okay, we saw Matthew 3, and it said if the tree doesn't bear good fruit, cut down and thrown in the fire. We saw Matthew 25. If you're doing good things to people, in case you couldn't understand that tricky little fruit metaphor, spells it right out, taking care of the hungry, the thirsty, the naked, the in prison, and so on. That's what saves us. And if you don't do that, you're not saved. Let's have a look at John 15. So turn to the right and go to John. You're very familiar with this, I imagine, good friends. Um, let's read right at the beginning of the chapter there. I am the true vine, and my father is the vine dresser. Mm. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit. Oh, that doesn't what? Bear fruit. It doesn't bear fruit. Oh, every branch. So you could have a branch in you that doesn't bear fruit. So what happens to that branch? He takes away. Oh, it gets taken away. Okay, wonder what that means. And every branch that bears fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. Aha. Uh -huh. Okay. And then it talks about how we need to abide in the Lord. The branch cannot bear fruit of itself. See, that's the key right there. The branch cannot bear fruit of itself. That's the sense in which we need the Lord in order to bear fruit. Uh, but it's not true for one second that our doing has no impact. We're supposed to be doing that. We have to get used to bearing fruit from the Lord kind of thing. Uh, look at verse 5. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit. Uh -huh. For without me, you can do nothing. Okay, and what happens if someone does not abide in the Lord? If anyone does not abide in me, he is cast out as a branch and is withered. Oh, and what happens to him? And they gather them and throw them into the fire and they are burned. Uh-oh, here we go again. The, fruit, the unfruitful branches get burned. Hmm. Said it in Matthew 3, said it in Matthew 25, said it in John 15. Same kind of idea. Very clear it's talking about human beings. 
is talking about bearing fruit. In other words, producing something useful, doing something useful for others. Matthew 25 spelled out quite clearly what that is. Now, there are people in this world, amazing as it sounds, there are people in this world who believe that the entire Old Testament is not needed and neither are the four Gospels or anything else but the epistles of Paul because the epistles of Paul are the constitution of Christianity and Jesus himself may well have misunderstood his own mission and he may have not known what he was talking about. He was talking through his hat if he had one. And so we really need to go to Paul to find out what Christianity is. All right, let's do it. Let's go to Galatians chapter 5. So if you turn to the right, you go through Acts. You go through Romans and First and Second Corinthians. You get to Galatians. And uh, it's expressed in somewhat different ways, but it sure specifies what we're not supposed to be doing, in case that is unclear. Okay, look at 5, and let's start at verse 19. Now the works of the flesh are evident, <clears throat> which are adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lewdness, idolatry, sorcery, hatred, contentions, jealousies, outbursts of wrath, mm. selfish ambitions, dissensions, heresies, envy, murders, drunkenness, revelries, and the like, of which I tell you beforehand, just as I also told you in time past, that those who practice such things mm. will not inherit the kingdom of God. Practice, it says, or in the Old King James, do. It's the same word. Those who do such things, those who practice such things, shall not inherit. It's pretty clear. The doing of evil is what condemns you. The doing of good is what saves you. And then what's the next noun that we encounter in the text here? The next friend? noun is fruit. Oh, fruit. But the fruit of the Spirit. Oh, so that's like bad fruit that we just read about, right? Mm. And then it says the fruit of the Spirit. Okay, what is that like? The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such there is no law. Mm. And look at verse 24. And those who are Christ's have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Yes, its passions and desires, or in the Old King James, the affections and lusts. Yes, those who are Christ have crucified the flesh. So it's talking about a difficult experience that we have to go through here in which we crucify the flesh by not letting the flesh commit adultery or kill people and, and do all, all those things in that list. And isn't it interesting that the very next word is about fruit? That in other words, you stop doing that. Didn't the Lord say in John 15 there, uh, that every branch in me that bears fruit gets pruned so that it can bear more fruit. Well, what do you think is getting pruned off? It's all that growth, mm -hmm. all those little hairy sticker growth that's coming out of the branch there that gets cut off so that we can bear more fruit because the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, and, and all that kind of stuff. Um, all right, good. So let's go back to Revelation 14 at this juncture. So turn to the right. Uh, that was the one about the dead who die in the Lord from now on, uh, that they may rest from their labors and their works follow them. Let's just read that again. What verse are we there? That's verse 13 Thank in you. Revelation 14. Thank you. Then I heard a voice from heaven saying to me, Write, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Yes, says the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors and their works follow them. Yes, they may rest from their labors. Swedenborg explains this verse as he does all the verses in the book of Revelation. And what he says about it 
is that the labor that it's talking about, that you get to rest from, is not the labor of physical work. It's not, the, it's not that you physically work. I think this even affected the idea. It must have, mustn't it, friends? I don't know. But that idea of retirement, that you work and then you retire, you know, like you paid your dues, you did your bit, and then you, and then you retire. The idea that, that the greatest thing is to stop working. Um, that they may rest from their labors. The labors that Swedenborg says you rest from is the process of afflicting your soul and crucifying your flesh. He alludes directly to Galatians 5, 24, where it speaks about the crucifying of the flesh. Uh, and afflicting your soul is a phrase that comes up quite a bit in the Psalms and elsewhere uh, that we, ha we, you know, we need to afflict our souls and crucify our flesh. What that means is that hard, hard labor, that's hard labor, stopping yourself when you want to do one of these things, you know, praying to the Lord for strength to not do these things, repentance, fighting against your own lower self, crucifying the flesh, afflicting your soul. That is the labor. What a beautiful idea that that work comes to an end. There will come a day where you don't have to do that work anymore because you did it, you get saved, and you don't have to fight that fight anymore. The Lord takes care of it for you. That stuff is removed, taken away from you, and that's the end of your labors. Blessed are those who die in the Lord from now on because they will have rest from their labors. Rest meaning that peace, that seventh day of peace that comes at the end of that hard work of uh, shunning evils and, and uh, laying things aside and so on. But what are the works that follow them? The works that follow them are the th uh, is their love of being useful. And this ties in with the conversation that we've had recently, good friends, if you were part of this exchange about the Church of John and the idea that the Apostle John corresponds to uh, usefulness, the doing of good works, and that Christianity version 2.0, where Christianity is going from now, is it's going to be the Church of John. It'll be the Church of usefulness, not so much the Church of Peter and the Church of Faith. And um, an important element in that that I just came across recently in Swedenborg that I hadn't included in our previous discussion of it is that Swedenborg says it's most specifically the love of being useful. Now, I found that very, very intriguing because uh, a lot of us are forced in the course of our lives to do something useful. We have to take care of something or somebody or we have to work and earn a living or, or whatever it is. We've got some burden that we carry and some work that we do. Um, I think it's sort of sad when I think about the fact that so many Christians have lived and died with this thought that somehow what they're doing when they go to their work is like a fallen, unholy state, you know, like too bad I have to go do something useful, I have to create a phone system for everybody in the world, or I have to make these highways or that people will drive on, or have to get food from the farm to, to keep people alive. And unfortunately, that's what I had to do with my time when I could have been spending it more usefully falling down and worshiping and singing songs to God. But, but instead, I was doing all that usefulness. 
Well, um, something very interesting that Swedenborg says is that heaven, in fact, the whole universe, but especially heaven, is a kingdom of uses. The main thing that goes on up there is usefulness. This rather odd picture that we get from the book of Revelation is a form of poetry. Doesn't it seem that way? It's more like a, like a, a set piece or so, you know, they fall down, they worship, they cast their crown. You know, it's symbolic. It can't, can't people see that, that, that it's, it's something symbolic that, that when they cast down or the harps, you know, you're not physically wearing your fingers out on a little thing with a bunch of strings. Uh, the, the harp has to do with uh, praising God and has to do with the word. And um, uh, all of these things are images, what, what the angels are doing. The fact that they stand before God is because standing is not caving. What does the house do in Matthew 7 when the flood comes and everything, the beat on that house? Uh, it, it stands. That's what angels do, like they remain with God. They're strong with God. Uh, that's what the standing means. It's not that they're standing around doing nothing, you know, like the, some of the crews you see out on the highways or something. The, uh, they're, 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 they're working. They're, they're doing stuff. What makes it not labor, to state the obvious, isn't it, friends, that, that they love what they're doing. Isn't loving what you're doing? Isn't doing something you love the greatest kind of relief? Do, do you sometimes get relief from yourself, friends? Like you, you disappear. You don't even know you're there anymore. And hours can go by. You know, may, maybe all day or all night or something, or you forget to eat because you're so engrossed in this thing. I know that in this world, there's an awful lot of work that we have to do that just feels like labor. Uh, and I know it's not possible necessarily to love every minute of the work that you have to do. Swedenborg talks about even in the other world, uh, they have days off and stuff where they go play games and do sports and have, you know, enjoy theater and stuff like that because uh, you just can't keep it up day and night, day and night, constantly working and striving and so on. You need some downtime. Uh, and that's part of the picture. But uh, the love of being useful. Now, do you see, friends, philosophically uh, that it's possible to be useful without loving to be useful? Have you ever been served by someone, uh, let's say in a restaurant or something, who didn't seem to be in the highest heaven in the course of performing their function? Um, <laughs> they didn't want to be there. Uh, there can be a difference between, yes, they're being useful to you, uh, but they're in a terrible mood. They can't wait till it's over or, or whatever. You know, thank God it's Friday and, you know, get to stop, stop working, go do something fun. Um, so the love of being useful can be separate from the usefulness. But the other way around can be true, too. Uh, sometimes people, as you're aging, you know, your physical body can't do everything you wanted to do or you used to be able to do or whatever. And so that gets frustrating. You know, sometimes your situation is very limited or whatever. Uh, that is separate from whether you love being useful. You can still love it, right? You can still wish that you were useful, right? Uh, the love of being useful is somewhat philosophically separable 
from the actual act of being useful. And what we're supposed to be cultivating here in this world is the love, the enjoyment of being useful. I have a friend whose parent used to say, you know, how long do I have to clean my room? Until you enjoy it. Uh, you know? <laughs> you know? Um, that's, that's good advice. There's, there's something heavenly in there. Uh, it's not always easy to get there. Um, another thing that people don't realize much, I don't think, is that uh, angels are not a separately created race of genderless beings and so on. Uh, angels are ex-people. Uh, they're just our ancestors, everybody's ancestors up there in the spiritual world. They died here. They went to the other world. And they're now in the other world living a full life and so on. And part of what that means is the amazing thought that we are potential angels in training. Uh, we're angels in training or we're devils in training. And, that we, and we have a choice about that. We talked last week about choose life. Uh, so uh, if we're angels in training... Isn't it useful to know? Don't you think the idea should be more widely known in our world that that horrible thing you do when you have to get in a car and go to that workplace and do that stupid job is actually a place where you can be training for heaven? It's so foreign to that idea that heaven is just going to be playing a harp and singing a song. Uh, and yet these angels, it says in the Psalms, the angels that excel in strength, we read that, passage last week. And uh, how do you get strong if you're not practicing? Uh, the angels are practicing. They're doing things all the time uh, and learning how to love being useful, how to rejoice in it. So what is usefulness? Uh, usefulness to me would be uh, something that has a positive impact on others. Swedenborg does say you can also be useful to yourself. And often, I mean, obviously, we do spend quite a lot of time just taking care of our, ourselves and our own and just make, you know, how, how many hours a day does it seem like we're just stuffing our face and washing ourselves and <laughs> making the bed and all that stuff. And, uh, but that's a form of usefulness, too. And we can practice there as well uh, to enjoy being of use. And isn't that a wonderful quality? Don't you see it in other people that when people, isn't it a wonderful quality that when people are devoted to something outside themselves, like they really just want this thing to work, whatever it is, well, we're developing a new insurance product that we feel will have a lower cost ratio and the return will be better for the, you know, and that, they're all devoted to that thing, you know? They, and they, that's what they think about. That's what they're studying about. They want to get that thing out. It's so satisfying when it works. Um, what was that thing recently? They sent that uh, spaceship up and they went all the way to Pluto or something like that. And it took 12 years or something. And I don't know if you saw any shots of the control room when that thing got there. These scientists, like these sober geeks, are freaking out, you know. <laughs> They are just so thrilled because this thing that they put years into, something's happening, we're learning something. You know, we did it. It succeeded. That's a love and an enjoyment of being useful. Now, some people would say, 
I don't know how useful this, anything about outer space is and so on, and I can, I can hear that argument, but um, it is useful. It's doing something. It's something outside of yourself, working as a team, trying to get something done. Uh, I think people know that, lots of people know that feeling, but I don't think it's well known in our world that that feeling is of heaven, that that feeling has something to do with heaven. That's a heavenly feeling, and that we can practice that and try to cultivate that feeling while we're here in this world. Let's go to Luke, shall we? Let's go back into the New Testament to the Gospel of Luke, to chapter 22. Um, and listen to what Jesus has to say about this. Right, Just read a few verses. Luke 22, <clears throat> we start at verse 24. Now, there was also a dispute among them. This is among the disciples. As to which of them should be considered the greatest. A very important question that is much to be considered. Uh, go on. And he said to them, The kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and those who exercise authority over them are called benefactors. Mm. But not so among you. Oh. On the contrary, he who is greatest among you let him be as the younger, and he who governs... the younger. Hmm. Oh, sorry. Yep. Mm -hmm. And he who governs as he who serves. Serves. Wow, how does that fit serves? The Lord is teaching service right there. Interesting. So how have people fit that in with the idea of rest from your labors and not doing anything? And yet here's Jesus teaching service, and what does he say there? For who is greater... He who sits at the table or he who serves? Mm. Is it not he who sits at the table? Yeah. Isn't it better to be like, if you're trying to get ahead in life, don't you want to be the one who's sitting there getting fed, not the dumb one who has to bring in the food? But... Yet I am among you as the one who serves. I am among you as the one who serves, says the Lord. That's really amazing. God himself came into this world. Now, I love what he does there because there is a sense uh, in the human race, is there not, that we're all in this dreadful competition to get ahead of each other and to want to rule this or your dream of being the great so-and-so or whatever. And he's saying, it will not be so among you. You aim to be the younger and to be the servant. Like, go for that sweet job where you get to bring the food out to the crabby person. You know, that's a sweet gig right there. Uh, and he says, I am among you as the one who serves. And we see this. We see this very dramatically in John chapter 13. If you turn to the right, you probably know the story I'm talking about. A very beautiful thing. Jesus, right at the end of his life here, and we'll read at the beginning of John chapter 13. Now, before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come, that he should depart from this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. And supper being ended, the devil having already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, 
Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going to God. And let me pause you right there. Dear reader, have we hit a main verb yet? No. No, we have not. We have hit a series <laughs> of participial phrases. That's right. And so look at this setting here that he loved his own. He loved them to the end. Supper being ended, the devil having put it into Judas Iscariot to betray him, Jesus knowing that the Father had given all things into his hand and that he was come from God and he went to God, what did he do under that amazing circumstance? He's about to be betrayed. The whole game is about to end. And what does he do? He rose from supper and laid aside his garments, took a towel and girded himself. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel with which he was girded. Now, it is well known that washing other people's grody feet is a very desirable job. Uh, many people covet that position. Oh, I'd like to wash everybody's feet. Um, that was a very, very lowly function. Like the, if you had a whole hierarchy of slaves, you have your better, uh, more proud slaves who you know, uh, this and that and the other. You get the worst one down the bottom of the totem pole uh, to do the, the grody job of the feet, you know, washing the feet. And that, that's at that moment, at the end of everything, at the end of his ministry and having loved his own and knowing he's about to be betrayed and he was sent by God and he's going back to God, how does he spend those last minutes washing feet? It's amazing. Go on. Then he came to Simon Peter, and Peter said to him, Lord, are you washing my feet? Jesus answered and said to him, What I am doing you do not understand now, but you will know after this. Yes, you will know after this. You don't understand it right now. You, don't, you know, like Peter was sort of, I think it blew his mind. <laughs> you know, what, what are you doing? We're so used to this image now, the Lord washing the feet, that it's become this holy, amazing image, and it is. But nothing in the Lord's ministry up to that point could have prepared them for the idea that he was about to dress up as a servant and wash their feet. Like, why? what is he doing? They, they can't even understand what he's doing. I am among you as one who serves. He was here as a service. He said that he was laying down his life for his friends this was this a spirit of sacrifice and service and usefulness. And when you see him, read through the gospel sometime, you see him just going and going and going. He's healing and healing and healing. Then he's up all night and he's praying. And then in the morning, there's a whole crowd that comes to see him. And so he has compassion on them and he heals them and heals them and heals them. He, he, he's not slacking. Uh, he is really, really working. And he is weighing what he says to people uh, he's very present and interacting with who, whomever it is, uh, Jewish people, Greek people, Syrophoenicians, Roman, Pontius Pilate, whoever it is. He's very careful in his interactions with people and what he's, what he's saying, trying to do them good. Whether he's rebuking them, uh, whether he's lifting them up and comforting them, he's always trying to do them good. And he's healing their diseases, casting out their demons, uh, cleansing the lepers. Uh, he's taking care of the people constantly, having compassion. How can you reconcile that with a life of inactivity? It doesn't make sense. We're supposed to follow the Lord. 
and the Lord was being immensely useful and, and just almost round-the-clock service. I mean, sometimes it just sounds exhausting, you know, one thing after another, and so needed by everybody and everything. But devoting his life uh, to that kind of service. Um, so, these are just a few passages, friends. Uh, there are so many passages about good works, so many passages about bearing fruit. Scripture is always wanting us to bear fruit, be pruned so that we can bear more fruit, better fruit, and so on. Uh, all of these passages are trying to indicate to us that we are to become useful. All those things in Matthew 25 are ways of benefiting other people. Uh, that's what we're supposed to be doing here. And not just benefiting them because many of us are driven to benefit others through you know, financial necessity or whatever. It's the love of it. That's something we have to receive from the Lord. That's something we receive as we lay aside the love of those other things. If you think of that horrible list in Galatians 5 that we read, all those things are things that harm the neighbor. You know, that there's some victim, that some, somebody gets wronged by all those things. And we tend to love those things of our own lower selves. The lower self is corrupt according to the deceitful lusts. So we have to lay those things aside and then we receive from the Lord that love of being useful, that, that love of benefiting um, others and, and seeking to bless them, looking for nothing in return. Um, let me look quickly down my list here and see if there's anything else I wanted to cover tonight. I think that pretty well has it. So uh, to sum up, in the book of Revelation, I mean, in the book of Genesis at the beginning, that creation story, the fall, that, that cultivation, the land that gets cultivated is ourselves. That's our own spirit. Don't we see that in the parable of the sower that the Lord is telling us how to be good ground? There are three types of bad ground. There's one type of good ground, and he wants us to be good ground. So what we're told there in that story is that the fall resulted in us toiling to develop ourselves as good ground. Is that true? Once we had hereditary evil, was it a little more difficult to be reborn? Was it more difficult to love God and our neighbor? Yes. Did we sweat in the brow? Yes, we sweated in the brow. The brow has to do with love. And uh, so was our heart sort of sweating when, we, when we're trying to turn from loving evil to loving good. That's what it means. Uh, that's what the nature of the curse was. God is not arbitrary. He doesn't just sort of say, what? You ate a piece of fruit? I will curse a million, billion, zillion people forever for that wretched thing you did. You know, it doesn't make any sense. Uh, what, what is being said there is about the human heart. Adam is sort of every man, Eve, every woman, that, that kind of thing. In fact, it's even deeper than that, but I won't go into it now. And what's going on with that is that that spiritual rebirth, her, her labor and delivery, that is going to be more painful because there's an evil in the world that wasn't there before. And the cultivation, the regeneration, the preparing of our ground to be uh, the good ground to receive that seed of the word and bear much fruit, some 30-fold, some 60-fold, some 100-fold, uh, that is something that's going to take more effort now 
that used to be relatively effortless when there was no hereditary evil. That's what that story's about. It's not about that it's holier to sit on a mountain cross-legged than it is to go down and get a job. Uh, and in the book of Revelation, all those images of the harp falling down, singing songs and all that is all about the state of our spirit in relation to God. It's not what you do with your spiritual body in the other world. When you see angels in scripture, they're doing things. They're coming down and getting the Christmas story to move along and they're, they're comforting people. They're comforting Jesus before the crucifixion. They're, they're always doing things. They're, they're forms of usefulness. Uh, so people have gone wrong by taking those things so literally when it's really sort of a poetry about the inner self and our relationship to God and not seeing a thousand passages about fruit, about profit, about usefulness, you know, is this profitable and so on, um, about good works where scripture is teaching us again and again to be useful, to love being useful, to cultivate that love and enjoyment. So in conclusion, uh, because we were thrown off the scent by talk about rest from our labors and to the lower self, sounds very appealing. Very, just wonderful to think, oh, I get to quit. I get to sit down now or somebody else will take care of me. I remember an episode of Homer Simpson where he discovered how great it was to be in a wheelchair and to you know, have his leg in traction and be taken care of and fed all the time. He just said this is the most wonderful thing because um, he didn't have to do anything. Uh, but because we're thrown off the scent by talk about rest from our labors, a few are aware that the best preparation for heaven is learning to love and enjoy being useful, and being involved in useful service to others, especially from something that we, something that we love. You know, when, when we're engaged and there's something of the Lord flowing through us and benefiting others, that's the church of John. It's not just usefulness, it's the love of usefulness. Thank you, good friends. Let's close with a prayer. Our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, it's almost beyond belief that you bowed the heavens and came down into this world to show us those simple acts of service, of love and compassion, truth and understanding about the human spirit coming right down into words and deeds, amazing words and deeds. Does it not say at the end of the Gospel of John that if everything Jesus did and said were written down, I'm not sure the whole world could contain the volumes that would be written. That is a life of usefulness, of loving to be useful. What a huge useful impact your life has had on our world, Lord and we know the best has yet to come. It's hardly even catching on yet, but great things lie ahead. We pray for your presence among us. Teach us, Lord, to love and enjoy being useful and prepare us. We'd like to be angels in training. Prepare us, O oh Lord, for heaven, for a life in your kingdom of uses. Our Father, who art in the heavens, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, as in heaven, so upon the earth. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we also forgive our debtors. 
and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Let's keep on repenting, friends. That's the only way to learn to love to be useful.